a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers gather to find courage and camaraderie, to own their worldview, to become more certain of who they are and what they stand for, and then to boldly go forward using their influence to change the world in ways that we can only do as individuals, right there within our own sphere of influence. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for being part of our audience today. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. Well, I hope you had a great uh, Christmas break. I know it was uh, it was a lot of snow within the Intermountain West, and I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I will say that uh, driving on winter roads, definitely not my favorite thing to do. It's, uh, I, I don't know. The, the older I get, the more I'm like, hey, I really am turning into my parents. Dad didn't seem to mind the road so much. Of course, he was the, he was the kind who would take us out into the church parking lot and spin cookies, you know, before church or, you know, spin cookies at the end of the cul-de-sac that I grew up in. But uh, my mom has always been one of those people like, is there snow falling? How many flakes? If it's more than two flakes, she's like, I'm not traveling. You know, it's just, you got to be careful. But anyway, a lot of people traveled. A lot of people had great holidays. I hope yours was one of the exceptional ones. And now that we're back from the holidays, let's jump in with both feet and talk about some things that matter. In the in the course of today's show, we're going to talk about how uh, Marxism seems to be the proffered solution to just about every crisis that we have, and there's several overlapping crises. We're going to explain how the Marxists have captured the universities and may soon capture the nation. Uh, got a great piece here from a, a writer who goes by the pen name of Patricia Henry about uh, what it's like to enter the American Twilight Zone. This is an article that you will definitely want to check out because the anniversary of the January 6th uprising is taking place. Oh, sorry. It's it's coming. The anniversary is coming. And uh, I don't know for sure what those in power are going to do, but it's a pretty safe bet they're going to milk this one for everything they can. If uh, your Christmas included the addition of firearms to, you know, the gifts and and the possessions that came into your family's hands, well, I've got a great uh, article here from Brian Miller about youth gun safety, a smart parent's guide to keeping your kids safe. Also, from across the pond, C.J. Hopkins, writing from Germany, has a great take on the year of the new normal fascist. I will warn you. There's some bad language in his article, but he has some insights that are that are very worthwhile. We'll talk about why 107 years after the Christmas truce of 1914, there still is no peace on earth. Also uh, about uh, well, we'll talk about the erasing of unpopular opinion, not just not just unpopular opinion, but the wholesale effort to banish the existence of people from social media platforms who have, you know, exceeded the boundaries of authorized opinion. And let's see, a couple other things coming up here. Oh, 
will connect the dots between the current energy prices and how it affects our food supply. I wish I had more good news on this front, but I don't. You've been warned. And uh, last but not least, in the course of today's show, uh, I've been a Drew Carey fan for a lot of years, so you're going to hear about something that uh, Drew Carey did just before the Christmas holiday that uh, just shows you what a stand-up guy he really is. So, let's begin with uh, how Marxism is being offered as the the way to, you know, basically, look, if you just shut up and embrace Marxism, we could call an end to this pandemic. It really feels like this is the choice that we've been given. And I'm sorry if that sounds dramatic or it sounds like, geez, you're really overstating things here, but I I look at the, the solutions that have been proffered, and I just, I don't see that we are being given any good alternatives. Doug Casey, in an interview with International Man, does a marvelous job of explaining how the Marxists have captured the universities and how they may soon capture the nation. If nothing else, it'll it'll help you recognize Marxism, even when it's, you know, masquerading as, as something, oh, we're just trying to solve problems here. Now give us more power. Give us more control. International Man says, Communist and socialist ideas are growing in popularity among the millennial and Gen Z generations. In fact, the majority of young people dislike capitalism and favor a more socialist or even a communist economic system. This is evidenced by the rise of politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Squad. And so they asked Doug Casey, what is your take on this? Now, Doug Casey says the youth are being corrupted and it's more serious than ever. Although I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, since people have probably thought the youth were becoming degenerate since about day one. For instance, one of the two charges against Socrates when he was executed in ancient Greece was corrupting the youth. So older people always think the youth are foolish, ignorant, lazy, crazy, and generally taking the world to hell in a handbasket. And of course, many of their charges are and always have been true. But he says as the kids get older... They generally get wiser, more knowledgeable, harder working, more prudent, nothing new here. He says the world has survived roughly 250 new generations since civilization began in Sumer 5,000 years ago, and it will likely survive this one as well. He says that's the bright side. As you know, I always look on the bright side. But on the other hand, the American university system has been totally captured by cultural Marxists, socialists, statists, collectivists, promoters of identity politics, and people of that ilk. So the bottom line is, these people hate Western civilization and its values, and they're actively trying to destroy them. And Doug Casey says, my view is that this challenge is perhaps the most serious we've ever encountered, and the dangers are greatly amplified by advancing technology. Now, a follow-up question from International Man is, well, what role are Western universities playing? How is this shaping current and future generations? Doug Casey answers, universities have been totally transformed in many ways over the past century. And it's been the worst, it's been for the worst, rather, in every instance. When the average 18-year-old goes to college, he knows very little about how the world works in general. He's got vague ideas he's picked up mostly from TV, movies, and people who got a job teaching high school. They know basically nothing about economics, government, or history. Worse, what they think they know is mostly wrong. 
and that makes them easy prey for professors with totally bent views to indoctrinate them. It's not so much that they're taught inaccurate facts. There are plenty of what he calls factoids, which which means artificial facts, of course, like the war between the states, which shouldn't be called the Civil War, was mainly fought to free the slaves, or that Keynesian economics is correct, or that the U.S. is a democracy ruled by we the people, and many, many more. But he says that's just part of the problem. It's not just the factoids they've taught. It's the way the schools interpret actual facts and the kind of meaning they infuse into events. The why of events is twisted. The concepts of good and evil are perverted. The education system has been almost completely captured by Marxists and other leftists. So they're in a position to indoctrinate the youth, and they use that power to the maximum. Once a kid's thoughts are bent, much the way a tree can be bent as a sapling in one direction or another, it's very hard to straighten them out. And, of course, that leads to the question of whether the youth should be directed one way or another in the first place. Which values are right or wrong? Well, Doug Casey says, I certainly have views on that subject, but this isn't the place to go into them, beyond saying that basic values are too important to be left to random government employees. He says the real problem, however, is that today's education does not teach critical thinking. Rather, just the opposite is true. Students are taught blind acceptance of what's currently considered politically correct. And instead of questioning authority in a peaceful, rational manner, which is what Socrates did, the current idea is to prevent any divergent views from even being discussed. So the professors are basically all socialists, and the kids tend to believe what they're taught. And those views are reinforced by the other sources of information surrounding them, Hollywood, mass media, and the government itself. I'm going to hit the brakes on this one because we're coming up on our own break, but I think this is true not just at the college or university level. I think you're starting to see this kind of stuff creep into the, the schools, the public schools. Yes, right even down to grade school. We'll come back with some more answers from Doug Casey about how the Marxists captured the universities and soon will capture the nation. I know, it's starting out on a positive note, are we? These are difficult facts, but uh, trust me, they are worth facing because we need to know where we stand at this moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you for giving this program a chance. I'm saying that especially if you are a first-time listener. Just kind of get a feel for what uh, what is this all about. I am not here spreading sunshine and handing puppies to everybody. But I'm not here to rain on your parade either and tell you that uh, life is a sucking, swirling eddy of despair in an ever-darkening universe either. We've got some pretty tough times, and, and this is part of a cyclical, this is part of the cycles of history. We are going through a period of crisis, and that crisis is building towards uh, a climax of some kind, and it's probably going to involve things like major economic upheaval, it's going to involve major civic decay, probably will involve global 
warfare. Not very pleasant things to face, but if I tell you, we've been through this before. We've seen this cycle play out at least three times previously, just in the existence of the United States of America. And we've made it through every one of those crises, sometimes for the better, sometimes not so much for the better. Things are always a little bit different on the other side of that change, but we're going through it right now, and it it behooves us to be as well-informed and as grounded as we can be in terms of our personal principles and the principles of liberty and the practices of liberty. So I'm sharing this article here from, uh, this is from International Man, an interview with Doug Casey, How Marxists Captured the Universities and Will Soon Capture the Nation. Doug Casey points out here that destructive ideas usually start with intellectuals. And he says intellectuals typically despise business, commerce, and production, and they envy the money the capitalists have. Intellectuals feel they're not only smarter, but also much more moral than business people. So that gives them the right, in their own eyes, to dictate to everyone else. They're usually socialists and approve of cadres like themselves, ordering everyone else to ar- around. Intellectuals naturally gravitate to the universities, where they're paid to hang out with each other, be lionized by kids, and hatch goofy ideas. And he says this has always been the case. But it's become a much bigger problem than in the past. Partly because a much, much higher percentage of kids go to college now than ever before. Even in the recent past, at most, 5 or maybe 10% of kids went to college. These days, almost everybody goes, and a much higher proportion of the youth are being infected with leftist memes than ever before. Some kids will grow out of it, and soon, and they'll realize that uh, most of what they've paid an exorbitant amount of money to learn is nonsense. But most will reflexively defend what they were taught in the cocoon. And he says, I'm afraid that... Uh, Uh, A very high proportion of these people make up a chunk of the U.S. population. Kids who are polled say they think socialism is good. Now, Doug Casey says, I suspect the polls are accurate. And even if they don't think it, almost all of these kids feel it. Although few know the difference between thinking and feeling. If you're brought up thinking that the value of socialism and the welfare state are good, and everyone around you believes in them, well, the chances are that uh, you will too. Now, the next question he's asked by International Man is, what are your thoughts on the emphasis on identity politics and the concept of white privilege? Doug Casey says, identity politics is essentially the idea that a person is first and foremost a member of some race or ethnicity and only secondarily an individual. Now, in recent years, most people have been indoctrinated indoctrinated rather, indirectly and directly, subtly and overtly, to believe that white people and the civilization they created are bad. I mean, the meme is everywhere. They've come to believe Western civilization is a bad thing and that white people are destroying the world. And even if they don't want to believe it, because the concept is so stupid and utterly con- contrafactual, they'll end up accepting it just because they've heard it over and over. Propaganda works. Memes that originated with origi- with intellectuals, rather, in universities have thoroughly infiltrated the mass media and the entertainment industry. He says it's perverse how today's thought leaders overwhelmingly think the same thing. There's been no defense at all. Forget about a counterattack from so-called capitalists and business leaders. All they're interested in is making money. 
In fact, they not only accept the ideas, but contribute money to the causes of their enemies, idiotically thinking that virtue signaling will placate them. It's an unfortunate fact, he says, that business people, especially the suits managing large corporations, don't really care how they make money. They tend to be completely amoral or immoral Philistines and political hacks. They look like hypocrites and are correctly held in contempt by the intellectuals. Now, he says the corporate types are happy to work with and for their counterparts in government, which is exactly what the fascism of Mussolini advocated. They self-righteously make charitable contributions to universities and non-governmental organizations, subsidizing the source of the poison. Casey says there's almost no defense of the ideas that brought us Western civilization, which is responsible for just about everything that's good in the world. And he says, I'm not kidding when I make that assertion. With the exception of a few anomalies like Taoism, martial arts, yoga, and oriental cooking, East minus West equals zero. Without it, the whole world would resemble Africa, Cambodia, or Mongolia, not even today, but 200 years ago. Ideas like individualism, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, science, rationality, and capitalism are products of Western civilization. But Doug Casey says these concepts no longer have any defenders anywhere. They're under attack everywhere. The next question he's asked is, well, what do you think the impact of this will be on the markets and the economy? Doug Casey's answer is, well, I'm bearish, especially for the near term, since actual Jacobins are in charge in Washington. He asks, how can the markets be healthy when what passes for a ruling class in the West actually hate themselves and the middle class is collapsing economically and psychologically? When political entrepreneurship is valued more than making money through production, when currency is being actively destroyed to prop up what's become a very corrupt political system. In fact, he says, the economy and the markets are the least of our problems. The very foundation of civilization itself is under attack. And the widespread acceptance of destructive statist and collectivist ideas is serious. And the consequences will be the same here as they were in Russia under the Soviets, in Germany under the Nazis, and in China under Mao. That's pretty sobering. Doug Casey says the situation may be even more serious since the idea of Western civilization itself is under serious attack in the U.S., which has been the bulwark for the last century. So he says, excuse my bearishness, but I think it's warranted. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty heavy thing to have to try to contemplate and and uh, get your mind around. And I don't want to share this with you in the idea that, well, see, everything is lost. So <laughs> I guess we just put our hands in the air and run around screaming at the top of our lungs. There's nothing else we can do. Au contraire, my friend. There are things we can do, but you and I have to be practiced at distinguishing between those things over which we have control and those that we don't. So a lot of the stuff that's going on, uh, for instance, the, the D.C. melodrama. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Most of the news coverage, you know, of our news cycle seems to originate there. It's a pretty safe bet 
most every national newscast in today's heritage media, or at least most reporting, starts with something, you know, that has to do with here's what's happening in Washington, D.C., as if it's the most important thing in your life. All I'm asking you to do is consider taking a step backward, take a deep breath, and ask yourself, is this really the case? Because I think you're going to find there are much more important things right there in front of your nose that deserve your attention more than, you know, what this politician said about that politician and whatever posturing they're trying to accomplish. You know, leadership is using your influence as wisely as you can right where you are standing. And I say that with the understanding that wherever you are at this moment, you have real influence. So let's use it wisely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to send a little love out there for lifesavingfood.com. So here's the deal. You no longer have to use the coupon code HIDE. I'm just making this as easy as I can. But uh, if you will order your food storage through lifesavingfood.com, here's some incentive. And I hope this is a powerful enough incentive to get you to, to log onto their website. There's a link there in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. See what they have to offer. And if they have it, you know, if they have what you're looking for, go ahead and uh, click to purchase and receive a 15% discount, no sales tax, and free delivery. Look, food prices are going up everywhere. We're going to talk more about what that means and why they're still going to be going up and how it's tied to the uh, current energy crisis. But in the meantime, everything that you can sock away for a rainy day strengthens your position to stand on your own two feet. So with that in mind, visit my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. See what they can do for you. Well, we're coming up on the uh, anniversary of January 6th. You know, the the thing that uh, a lot of politicians apparently like to refer to as an insurrection. One of the best recountings of what actually took place last year is an article that I'm about to share with you from a writer who writes under the pen name of Patricia Henry. I like that. That's <laughs> it's it's good. Patrick Henry was very outspoken. Patricia Henry likewise is. But uh, the thing to keep in mind is that the people in power are working themselves into a tizzy. So let's uh, let's take a look at how we're entering the American twilight zone. Patricia Henry says we didn't know it then, but on election night, November 8th, 2020, America entered a twilight zone every bit as eerie and unanticipated as anything dreamed up by Rod Serling decades earlier. It began with time standing still in the middle of the election night vote count, followed by a flood of outlandish vote totals being relayed to us, especially from Democratic strongholds in seven swing states. Then there was the alacrity with which network analysts declared Biden the winner, especially the Fox News early projection of a win, a Biden win in Arizona. Among Trump partisans and Republicans generally, there was shock and mounting disbelief. Had the triumphant incumbent, fresh off years of creating a vibrant economy, establishing the conditions for a significant peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, erasing the brutal caliphate, 
standing up to and quelling both the insatiable dragon of communist China and Putin's snarling Russian bear, shutting down the fiery Iranian mullahocracy, mullahocracy rather, and creating American energy independence, had Trump somehow lost to the enfeebled, untrusted political cipher, Scranton Joe? Well, Patricia Henry says, despite the 2020 election's irregularities, which were legion, the next two months leading up to the January 6th Capitol Hill debacle were a study in media manipulation. Virtually every organ and institution of public information joined hands to create a bum's rush of legitimacy for Scranton Joe's historic victory. Not only was there an unprecedented an unbelievable turnout of voters, with Trump receiving 8 million more votes than any preceding sitting president, while the bumbling, blackluster, boring, invisible Biden, with no hint at any time in his political career of an excited public following, bested Trump by an additional 7 million votes. This was an electoral miracle that rivaled Moses parting the Red Sea and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. In fact, as evidence of major election irregularities and corruption begin to surface in the form of hundreds of eyewitness reports and sworn affidavits, analysis by credentialed statisticians and computer experts, the sworn testimony on penalty of perjury of poll watchers and election workers, and even shocking videotape of poll workers in Democrat strongholds, double and triple counting mysterious suitcases of unverified ballots. The press and our new masters in big tech grew ever sh- more sh- ever shriller rather and more derogatory of Trump and the claims of his legal team that there was something foul afoot on election night but the courts remained the three monkeys of denial see no evil hear no evil speak no evil the catch 22 machine was used to prevent court review of the growing mountain of charges and evidence when warnings of impending election fraud and manipulation had been raised prior to the vote, they were dismissed as being speculative. When they were raised and demonstrated after the vote, they were dismissed for being after the fact and too late. The American people were being treated to a legal system that could have been devised by Franz Kafka, a literal nightmare of injustice. The Twilight Zone script was now in full control. Despite mountains of evidence of irregularities, corruption, and inexplicable anomalies, the FBI, the Justice Department, attorney generals at every level, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and most every official and agency charged with safeguarding national election integrity demurred or tried to shut down any investigation and to shut up and intimidate any whistleblowers. Every attempt was made to create irreversible facts on the ground. They rolled out an office of the president-elect for Biden and Kamala to appear in fake stage sets, sporting that uh, that uh, label to convince America they had effectively be already been installed irreversibly as our leaders, although the election had not yet even been certified or affirmed as required by Congress. This all created a condition of unreality and distrust in a large portion of the American public. As used to be said regarding Bill Clinton... Are you going to believe him or your lying eyes? Then came January 6th. President Trump had called for a mass rally in Washington, D.C. to show support for him and for a fairly arrived at election outcome. It is unquestioned that well in advance, he repeatedly offered up to 10,000 National Guard troops and other support for D.C. and Capitol Police to manage the expected crowds, and to guarantee a peaceful and orderly day of election certification by the Congress. 
It is equally unquestioned that Speaker Pelosi, who had complete authority and the responsibility for safeguarding the Congress and its deliberations, refused President Trump's proffer of support. The stage was set. What could possibly go wrong? Well, when the day arrived, a fraction of the crowd, egged on by persons unknown on videotape with no connection to the Trump rally organizers, directed attendees to march to the Capitol, then to enter the grounds and building through police lines. Curiously, again, on videotape, there are several instances of police removing barricades and inviting the crowd onto the grounds and into the Capitol. A tiny fraction of this crowd wrestled with police and smashed the glass in several doors and windows. Everyone else sauntered peacefully through the hallowed halls like reverent tourists, even for the most part staying within the velvet rope lines in place to direct visitors. All of this on videotape. The resulting disruption lasted two or three hours. Two unarmed women civilians died. Ashley Babbitt, needlessly shot by a plainclothes police officer, Capitol Police officer, and another woman who appears to have died as the result of a police beatdown in one of the Capitol tunnels. That's it. Now the creators of America's Twilight Zone revved up their alternative reality narrative to blanket the landscape with the awful myth of a destructive, insurrectionary riot at the U.S. Capitol. Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats' spinmeisters had a tool with which to beat to death the Trump movement and anyone who opposed them or contradicted their version of electoral reality. At this point, a supposedly terrified speaker in an empty city called out the National Guard, 25,000 strong, ringed the Capitol with welded steel fences. Not since the Civil War, with Johnny Reb almost within shouting distance, nor the Whiskey Rebellion when wild-eyed moonshiners might have threatened life and limb, had D.C. seen such melodrama. Americans have sat for a year peacefully at home and watched and listened to the unfounded ranting of Democratic politicians and their echo chamber in the mass and social media, accusing normal, moderate to conservative citizens of thought crimes and insurrectionary behavior because they do not share the current extreme Democrat political agenda. Our nation has become a sickening avatar of the perished Soviet Union, where Orwell's Ministry of Truth was the mother of all lies. Our media, our Pravda, meaning truth in Russian, of America, sets the party line and propagates it throughout the information channels of our nation. We're governed by a barely functioning cipher in the presidency, who each day vandalizes our precious heritage and undermines the proud bulwark for freedom that America has become for the world. The bottom line here is if we allow the false reality of the twilight zone to rule us, we will be living in the twilight of America. Patricia Henry says the end of the American era may be here if the American people do not take their fate and the fate of freedom and respect for individual liberty and dignity back into their own hands. Now, I don't know if you agree or disagree, and I guess it's probably not terribly important that you agree with me. But I think these are pretty factual recount. This is a pretty factual recounting of what actually took place between the election, between the events of January 6th and what has followed in the years since then. All I can say is I'm certain we have been lied to at an unprecedented level. So be careful what you go to hang your hat on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you would like to subscribe, I will happily send you my show notes every day that I do the program. And it's nothing major other than, you know, I, I link to the different commenters and uh, commentators. Sorry. The commentators and commentaries <laughs> either interviewed or discussed in the show. It's, it's really great stuff. And uh, in particular... I found a great article that I wanted to share with you. I don't know if your Christmas is like uh, has been like the last couple of Christmases, but man, gun sales were off the charts for the last couple of years. So it's a safe bet that a number of folks became, became first-time owners of firearms. And I've got a great piece here from Brian Miller. Um, this is uh, actually published on everything-voluntary.com. Youth Gun Safety, A Smart Parent's Guide to Keeping Kids Safe. Brian Miller says with a firearm in one-third of American homes with children, it's very likely that as a parent, you've thought about gun safety for your child. Now, the statistic comes from Asking Saves Kids, ASK, a national campaign that encourages gun safety, something that may seem intense for a child but is absolutely necessary. See, the reason is children are naturally curious. To learn about the world, they gravitate toward the new and interesting, especially things that are often portrayed as taboo, like drugs, alcohol, and guns. Though it can be a nerve-wracking discussion, an important part of preparing your child to be an adult is teaching them how to think about guns when they do encounter one, whether it's in your home or someone else's. The Ask campaign promotes one simple idea to help with this conversation, which is to ask one very critical question. Is there an unlocked gun in your house? Parents and caregivers need to ask this important question before deciding whether to send a child to someone's house to play. Conversely, if children are coming over to your house, it's also important to tell the child's parents that you keep a gun in the home. Keeping kids safe takes communication by everyone involved. But what if you want a gun-free household? Well... Your kid will see guns in the movies and on TV, and they'll most likely come in contact with one at a friend's or relative's house, given the statistics. That's why properly educating your child on gun safety is a life-saving skill for all children. This guide shares the best ways to ensure your family knows how to properly handle guns, whether you keep them in your house or not. Now, Brian Miller starts by acknowledging safety starts at home. And he says, if you choose to keep a firearm in your home, you need to keep it in a securely locked location that only you can access. So here are three tips on how to do this. Number one, use a safe. While gun safety education benefits children, the best way for you to ensure children don't handle your guns unattended is to store all firearms and ammunition in a safe. You can find gun safes of all sizes, including small and affordable options that fit into a nightstand. Digital keypads or biometric touchscreens allow you to get to your firearm quickly. Secondly, he suggests know where and how to secure firearms, saying only adults who use the guns and ammo should know where and how to access them. Any gun, even stored in a safe, should be unloaded when you're not using it. And he says do it now. This is point three. Do it now, not later. If you carry a handgun outside the home, Make it a habit to immediately put your gun in the safe as soon as you return. Don't put it down on a table with the intention of storing it later. You may forget. 
Now, if you choose not to have firearms in your house, your child will likely come into contact with a gun at someone else's house, which is why you need to educate them on proper gun safety. Guns are like alcohol or drugs. As a responsible parent, you need to educate your child before they come into contact with a firearm when you're not around. If they know exactly what to do, their chances of acting safe and responsible go up considerably. Then there's the matter of modern security. Thanks to modern innovation, there are many safe and secure ways to store your firearms and ammunition. Biometrics, for instance. Biometric gun safes, safes utilize, utilize fingerprints, a uniquely identifying feature of an individual to lock and protect firearms and ammunition. Now, these biometric safes provide the highest level of protection, prevent unauthorized entry, and are designed to enable only those with stored fingerprints in its database to gain access. And because all you need are your fingerprints, you don't have to carry a key or recall a code or try to nervously key a combination in an emergency, making them quick, reliable, accurate, and easy to use. Now, the downside is biometric safes require electricity to power the reading units, storage, and other components. So if the electricity goes out or your battery goes dead, well, you can be locked out of your own safe. Now, to avoid this, Brian Miller says, opt for a biometric safe with a key override feature and be sure to keep the reader clean and free from damage to avoid technical problems. He actually recommends a specific safe, which is linked in the article. He also talks about multi-gun safes. Now, you can find a variety of these on the market, but stack-on gun safes are considered the best out there. They're affordable, well-built, they meet all government regulations and certifications that you need to safely and securely store all of your guns. All stack-on multi-gun safes are tested to withstand fires of up to 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. I believe that's for like 30 minutes it can do that. Um, and they're sturdy enough to handle falls and bumps. He recommends the Paragon 7550, 8 safe for gun rifles. For the top gun cabinet for under 500 bucks simply becomes it because it comes with an ample amount of security and space for storing up to eight guns. Now, there are also gun cabinets. Now, most gun cabinets of yesteryear didn't come with locks or other security features, but the new modern ones do. So he says, opt to buy a recent model for better security and safety. If you must go for an antique model, be sure to equip it with the best locking mechanism you can find. He says, if you want to keep your gun loaded in an easily accessible place, yet you also want to keep it secure, the safety bullet is a great tool. It allows you to keep a custom-made dummy bullet chambered first that makes your gun unusable if accidentally fired. All you have to do is cycle your gun to remove the safety bullet, and then it's ready for live action. But he says, no matter what kind of gun safe you opt for, consider anchoring it. Every safe comes with a hole on the bottom to easily anchor into concrete or wooden floors. This safety step keeps your safe secured in place, preventing theft or relocation for easier access. It's also important to ensure your safe is well hidden and not easy to find. Next, he says, have the gun talk often. Sit down with your kids and have multiple conversations on guns and gun safety. Establish family rules for how to handle the presence of guns in any situation. How soon should you start? Well, the answer depends on the comprehension and maturity level of your child. 
So here are some guidelines for discussing guns with your kids. I thought this was really sound advice. First of all, he says, remove the romance. Talk about how television, movies, and the Internet often romanticize guns, but he says, explain, it's not reality. Provide the facts. Talk about how many people each year are injured and killed by firearms, but also explain their main uses, like for the police to maintain order or for hunting or for personal protection. Next, he suggests talk about unsafe neighborhoods in your town or city. In other words, discuss those areas with high crime rates that your child may need to avoid. He also recommends bring a buddy. Tell your child to use the buddy system for safety by never going anywhere alone. No secrets allowed. Give your children a safe space to tell you about bullying or other threats of violence that threats rather of violence that they encounter. He also says nurture a healthy respect for firearms. Give your child the tools to be smart around guns. If your family likes to go on hunting trips, for example, make sure your child knows the difference between using a rifle out in the field and leaving a rifle unloaded and locked away safely at home. And know and teach kids gun laws. Lead by example and practice good safety habits regarding ownership and ongoing storage. Now, one of the things that uh, Brian Miller recommends here is take time as a family to learn gun safety together. Whether or not you choose to keep guns in your home, it's, it's a conversation that really kids need to have. Just so they know, you know, don't play with this. This is not a toy. It's a tool. Field and Stream has some great uh, programs out there. Um suggesting a bucket list of ideas like training at the range or shadowing seasoned gunmen first before allowing allowing kids to use guns on their own. For a woman's point of view on gun instruction, you can check out the Well-Armed Woman. This is linked within the article. The NRA's Eddie Eagle program. Fantastic way to teach kids what to do should they encounter a gun. And, of course, the Kids Health site, which gives insight on diet, exercise, and domestic security. Guns can be a scary topic, but with knowledge and discussion among your family, it's not that hard to keep people safe. Teach them correct principles. Watch them govern themselves. Where have I heard this before? This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you made it through the Christmas holiday safely. New Year's is straight ahead. Are you are you experiencing a little bit of trepidation as you look forward to 2022? I have seen one funny meme out there circulating. Is it 2022 or is it 2022? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I I see some interesting challenges ahead for the coming year. 
We're going to talk a little bit about those uh, in the uh, show this hour. I do want to mention that I have great sponsors who make this program possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Look, lots of people are relocating to the Intermountain West right now. If you are anywhere within the state of Utah and looking for a home, you should be talking to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They're located at 619 South Bluff Street. They are also reachable by telephone. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can trust the decades of experience that she has in the lending industry and know that she clearly understands the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. So with that said, let's dive into what is coming for the new year. You know, um, C.J. Hopkins, I've been, I've been reading this guy's material now for, uh, for a few months, and I have found him to be, well, a very plain-spoken voice on what is, is happening around us. I have an article that I want to share with you. This is, you know, interestingly enough, C.J. Hopkins is, is more of a political satirist, than investigative journalist, but he's been doing the heavy lifting of investigative journalism for this last year or so. And his take on the year of the new normal fascist is well worth your time. But I'm going to warn you, there's some salty language here. Okay, I won't, uh, I'll I'll do the self-edits here as I share these excerpts with you, but um, if you're offended by bad language, you may want to skip this one, but he's got some great insights. C.J. Hopkins writes, and so as 2021 goose steps toward its fanatical finish, it is time for my traditional year-end wrap-up. It's the year of the ox in the Chinese zodiac, but he says, I'm christening it the year of the new normal fascist. And what a phenomenally fascist year it has been. Now he says, I'm not talking amateur fascism. I'm talking professional class A fascism, government and corporate sanctified fascism, bug-eyed, spittle-flecked, hate-drunk fascism. (laughs) See why I like the guy's writing style? He says, I'm talking mobs of new normal fascists shrieking hatred and threats at the unvaccinated as they are dragged off. Vaccinated-only trains painting Nazi-era messages on the windows of their stores. Leaders of government fomenting mass hatred. TV commentators literally quoting sadistic Nazi SS doctors. Leftists going full fascist on Facebook, concentration camps. Gobelsian propaganda, censorship of dissent, the whole nine yards. In fact, he says here in Europe, things are particularly fascist. One by one. New normal countries are rolling out social segregation systems, ordering lockdowns of the unvaccinated and otherwise persecuting those who refuse to conform to the new normal ideology. Now, he says Austria has made vaccinations mandatory. Germany is about to follow suit. COVID passes have been approved in the UK. The Greece is now fining unpensioned or I'm sorry, unvaccinated pensioners by reducing the amount of their state pension payments. Wow, Swedes are chipping themselves with a microchip, and so on. C.J. Hopkins says in New New Normal Germany, the unvaccinated are under de facto house arrest. We are banned from society. We are banned from traveling. We are banned from protesting. Our writings are censored. We're demonized and dehumanized by the New Normal government, the state and corporate media, and the New Normal masses on a daily basis. 
New normal goon squads roam the street, brutalizing pensioners, raiding barbershops, checking papers, measuring social distances, literally, as in with measuring sticks. He links to every story that shows the reality of what he's describing here. The Gestapo even arrested Santa Claus for not wearing a mask at a Christmas market. And the schools, fascist new normal teachers, ritually humiliate unvaccinated children, forcing them to stand in front of the class and justify their unvaccinated status, while the vaccinated children and their parents are applauded, like some new normal version of the Hitler Youth. When new normal Germany's new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, announced, For my government, there are no more red lines as far as doing what needs to be done. Apparently, he wasn't joking. It's only a matter of time until he orders new normal propaganda minister, Karl Lauterbach, to make his big sports palace speech where he will make the, where he will ask the new normals if they want total war. And I think you know the rest of this story. But he says this isn't just a story about new normal Germany or New Normal Europe, or New Normal Australia. And it isn't just a story about mass hysteria or an overreaction to a coronavirus. The New Normal is a global, globo-cap co-production, a multi-trillion dollar co-production which has been in development for quite some time and this year has gone exactly to script. Given all the drama over the past 12 months, it's easy to forget that the year began with the occupation of Washington, D.C. by thousands of U.S., i.e., global cap forces in the wake of the terrorist assault on the Capitol, a.k.a. the January 6th insurrection or attempted coup or some such nonsense, carried out by a few hundred totally unarmed, unarmed rather, Donald Trump supporters who were allegedly intent on overthrowing the government and destroying democracy with, well... Their bare hands. This was the long-awaited return to normal spectacle that had been in the pipeline for the previous four years. The public humiliation of the unauthorized president and the populist who put him in office. And the global cop show of force that followed. Here's how I described it back in January, he writes. In other words, global cap is teaching us a, res- a lesson. I don't know how much more clearer they could make it. They just installed a new puppet president who can't even simulate mental acuity in a locked-down, military-guarded ceremony which no one was allowed to attend, except for a few members of the ruling classes. They got someone to convert the mall into a field of flags symbolizing unity. They even did the Nazi Lichtom thing. To hammer the point home, they got Lady Gaga to dress up as a Hunger Games character with a mocking Jay Brooch and sing the national anthem, and they broadcast this spectacle to the entire world. So C.J. Hopkins says, as I assume is obvious to everyone by now, the return to normal was a return to the new normal, which the global capitalist ruling establishment was already imposing on the entire world. The message couldn't possibly be clearer. As Arnold Schwarzenegger succinctly put it, the message is, screw your freedom. The message is, shut up and toe the effing line. The message is, show me your effing papers. Use the effing pronouns. Eat the effing bugs. Get the effing vaccinations. Do not ask us how many. The answer is, as many as we effing tell you. The message is there will be no more unauthorized presidents, no more leaving the European Union, no more populist rebellions against the global hegemony of global capitalism and its soul-crushing, valueless, woke ideology. Global cap is done playing grab-butt. 
They announced that back in March of 2020. They informed us in unmistakable terms that our lives were about to change forever. They branded and advertised this change as the new normal in case we were, you know, cognitively challenged. They did not hide it. They wanted us to understand exactly what was coming. A global capitalist version of totalitarianism in which we will all be happy little fascist consumers showing each other our compliance certificates in order to be allowed to live our lives. Now he says, I don't need to review the whole year in detail. You remember the highlights, the rollout of the safe and effective miracle vaccines that don't keep you from catching or spreading the virus and which have killed or injured thousands of people, but which you have to get every three or four months to be allowed to go to work or go to a restaurant. The rollout of the global social segregation or digital compliance certificate system that makes absolutely no medical sense, but which the vaccines were designed to force us into. The criminalization of dissent, the manufacturing of reality, the propaganda war, the Covidian cult, the great new normal purge, the whole pathologized, pathologized, pathologized totalitarianism package. He says, I want to end on an optimistic note because this fascism business is depressing. So he says, I'll just mention, as you've probably noticed, more and more people are waking up or relocating their intestinal fortitude. And finally speaking out against vaccine mandates and vaccination passes and social segregation and all the rest of this fascist new normal program. And he says, I intend to encourage this awakening vociferously. So happy holidays to one and all, except, of course, to the new normal fascists, especially the ones that are torturing the children. Be warned, he does use some strong language, but factually, I think he's right on the money. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I feel like I got a lot off my chest in sharing that C.J. Hopkins piece in the, the first segment of this hour. All right, more great stuff to follow. Quick shout out here to our friends at SewingQuiltingCenter.com. This is the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, located at 779 South Bluff Street. It's owned by uh, Teresa and Eric Alsop. You know, they are only the, uh, I think they are only the third owners of this business. Started back in 1984 by Ken Harker. Ken, by the way, is still there fixing machines. And Teresa has this uh, wonderful skill of teaching long arm quilting to uh, handy quilter customers. Look, if you are looking for the highest quality sewing machines, sergers, and quilting machines, this is where you'll find them. If you need your machines repaired, this is where you can get that service. If you need training on how to use it all, it's all there in one place. A family-owned business teaching skills that uh, will benefit not just you in the here and now, but generations. Go show them some love. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears. Well, let's talk about the uh, Christmas truce of 1914. I just saw this memory pop up on my Facebook page, and it made me miss my my friend Will Grigg, who passed away about uh, not quite five years ago. Um, If you're not familiar with the the Christmas truce of of, uh, 1914, this was when the troops out there in in the, the front lines of the First World War, remember the war had just barely started, And Christmas came, and uh, one of the troops, I think it was actually a German soldier, began singing, O Holy Night, 
and spontaneously, the soldiers separated by, I don't know how far, you know, a couple hundred yards of no man's land, laid down their arms and against the wishes of their superiors, came out of the trenches, shook hands and exchanged chocolates and, you know, showed photographs of their families because it was Christmas. And it had left some very uh, lasting repercussions, you know, in the in the minds of some of the uh, military officers. They were like horrified. Oh my gosh, they were fraternizing with the enemy. What are we going to do with these people? And here we are, 107 years later, and there's no peace on earth. So I want to share with you David Stockman's just a couple of excerpts from David Stockman's Christmas Truce of 1914. He says, after the Berlin Wall fell in November 1989 and the death of the Soviet Union was confirmed two years later when Boris Yeltsin courageously stood, courageously stood down the Red Army tanks in front of Moscow's White House, a dark era in human history came to an end. The world had descended into a 77-year war, incepting with the mobilization of the armies of Europe in August 1914. If you want to count bodies, 150 million were killed by all the depredations that germinated in the Great War. Its foolish aftermath at Versailles and the march of history into World War II and the Cold War that followed inexorably thereupon. Now think about this. Upwards of 8% of the human race was wiped out during that span. The toll encompassed the madness of trench warfare from 1914 to 1918, the murderous regimes of Soviet and Nazi totalitarianism that rose from the ashes of the Great War, and the follies of Versailles, then the carnage of World War II, and all the lesser, unnecessary wars and invasions of the Cold War, including Korea and Vietnam. At the end of the Cold War, therefore, the last embers of the fiery madness that had incepted with the guns of August 1914 had finally burned out. Peace was at hand. Yet 30 years later, there is still no peace because Imperial Washington confounds it. Now, he goes through such a a great historical recounting of all the different actions and Washington's war machine and the teeming national security industry, which is its its own agent of self-perpetuation. When it's not invading, occupying, and regime-changing, It has a vast apparatus of internal policy bureaus and outside contractors, lobbies, think tanks, and NGOs busy generating reasons for new imperial ventures. I want to just cut down here to one thing. Uh, This is an excerpt from an an article that Will Grigg wrote about that uh, truce of 1914. A sudden cold snap had left the battlefield frozen which was actually a relief for troops wallowing in sodden mire. Along the front, troops extracted themselves from their trenches and dugouts, approaching each other warily and then eagerly across no man's land. Greetings and handshakes were exchanged, as were gifts scavenged scavenged from care packages sent from home. German souvenirs that ordinarily would have been obtained only through bloodshed, such as spiked picklehob helmets or Gott mit uns belt buckles, were uh, bartered for simple for similar British trinkets. Carols were sung in German, English, and French. A few photographs were taken of British and German officers standing along each, alongside each other, unarmed, in no man's land. In one area, Germans and Scotsmen chased after wild hares that once caught served as an unexpected Christmas feast 
Perhaps the sudden exertion of chasing wild hares prompted some soldiers to think of having a football match. But then again, little prompting would have been necessary to inspire young, competitive men, many of whom were English youth recruited off soccer fields to stage a match. In any case, numerous accounts in letters and journals attest to the fact that on Christmas 1914, German and English soldiers played soccer on the frozen turf of no man's land. British Field Artillery Lieutenant John Wedderburn Maxwell described the event as probably the most extraordinary event of the whole war, a soldier's truce without any higher sanction by officers and generals. Now, David Stockman says the truth is there really was no good reason for the Great War. The world had stumbled into war based on false narratives and the institutional imperatives of military mobilization plans, alliances, and treaties arrayed into a doomsday machine and petty short-term diplomatic maneuvers and political calculus. Yet it took three, more than three-quarters of a century for all the consequential impacts and evil to be purged from the life of the planet. And the peace that was lost last time has not been regained this time. And for the same reasons, historians can readily name the culprits from 107 years ago. Now, Stockman's article is really long. So, I mean, give yourself some time. But he goes into great detail about how that piece was squandered and how it continues to be squandered. Let me give you a couple quick excerpts here. He says, Imperial Washington was so caught up in its myths, its lies and hegemonic stupidity, it can't see the obvious. Accordingly, 30 years after the Cold War ended, several years after Syria and friends extinguished the Islamic State, Washington still has learned no lessons. The American Imperium still stalks the planet for new monsters to destroy, presently in the precincts of Russian-speak eastern Ukraine that are utterly irrelevant to America's peace and security. And that's why there is still no peace on Earth 30 years after it should have broken out, as was the case 107 years ago during the Christmas truce of 1914. I know for some people this is going to sound a lot like, gee, Brian, really, do you want us to be peaceniks? You want us to go stick flowers in the soldiers' rifle barrels and, you know, start chanting together in unison and singing Kumbaya? I don't think we have to go quite that far, but I think we can we can agree that uh, the people who are sending our armed forces out there to enforce this action and that action around the world are the same people who are seriously dismantling our freedoms here at home at an ever-increasing pace. I'm just suggesting that maybe our best interests really aren't what they had in mind at any point. So, be careful who you give your heart to. Be careful who you give your allegiance to. You can still support the troops without throwing your full-throated support behind you know, what they're being ordered to do. But I think this is probably as good a time as any to decide, you know, where, where is your faith? Do you, do you trust in God? Do you trust in the arm of the flesh? That's a question only you can answer for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, I, I do my thing. I speak out. I encourage others to speak out. I find wonderful voices who make a lot of sense, and I share what they're saying with you in the hopes that you can find, you know, worthwhile nuggets of truth to apply in your own life. But, man, the efforts to suppress unauthorized opinions sure are getting intense. Steve Kirsch has an excellent article on his Substack about how LinkedIn has sought to punish him over three truthful comments. And it's it's not just enough to say, well, you can't post on here. They have, they have banished his entire existence. It's like he never existed. Steve Kirsch says, LinkedIn is the sole judge, jury, and executioner of what constitutes misleading or inaccurate information and whether you violate their user agreement. They can terminate you at any time for any reason. You have no recourse. Now, he says, because I made three truthful accurate statements that some people at LinkedIn considered to be misleading or inaccurate. My account, built up over nearly 20 years, is now permanently deleted. Now, his point is they could have simply restricted my ability to post, but instead they chose to expunge my entire identity so nobody will ever know I existed. Wow. He says that my my resume is gone, my awards are gone. Nobody can see what I've accomplished. Nobody can ever find out I existed. I didn't even get a chance to copy my profile before they wiped me out. All my contacts are gone. The record of my seven companies I started, gone. No one will be able to look up my history there anymore. It's like burning books in the library. By the way, he says Wikipedia did the same thing to me. They removed the mention that I received a National Caring Award as retribution for speaking out about vaccine safety. And here's his point, okay? This is not him wallowing in, oh, poor me, look at me, I'm a victim. The point is, this can happen to you too if you disagree with mainstream thought. He says, America today is about conformity with mainstream thought. If you disagree, you lose your job. You lose your ability to communicate. They remove any record of your existence. He says, I'm now lifetime banned on Medium, Twitter, LinkedIn, and SendGrid. He says, the reason I'm not yet banned on Facebook and YouTube is because I never post there anymore, but that's the trick. Just stop posting anything that goes against mainstream thinking and you won't be banned. Now, that sends a chilling message to America when free speech is restricted like this. Like it or not, social networks are the new town hall. And being arbitrarily terminated from a large social network because they disagreed with your views is simply stunning. Steve Kirsch says, I can't use email either because if an email provider decides they don't like what you're saying in your private emails, well, they can ban you as well. He says, I'm permanently banned from SendGrid, for example, because I sent one email to my personal contacts that uh, fluvoxamine was effective against COVID. That's all it took. They deleted my account and all my contacts without warning and without any ability to recover them. So what's next? Will my Internet provider be next to drop my Internet service because they don't like the emails I send? He says today they're under the jurisdiction of the FCC, but laws can be changed at any time so the government can better silence critics like me. Will every bank close my bank account? Will PayPal terminate my PayPal account like they did for the National Vaccine Information Center? 
Will grocery stores be required to check IDs on entry and not let you buy food if you're on a critical thinkers list? i got to hit pause here for a second and say, you know, there's a time that would have sounded like, oh, geez, come on. Talk about paranoid. I'm not so sure that any of these things he's mentioning are out of the realm of possibility, just based on what I've seen here in the last couple of years. Steve Kerr says, welcome to Joe Biden's America, or anyone who disagrees with the CDC is going to be deplatformed and intimidated. An America where if you disagree with mainstream beliefs, your ability to communicate with others will be terminated and you will have no recourse, even if everything you said is absolutely true. Truthful speech is not protected in America. Biden's disinformation dozen list is wrong and it sets a dangerous precedent. And he says it's stunning to me that the leader of the free world is advocating for censorship of free speech. He's supported in his call by every member of Congress, none of whom has spoken out against this, and by all mainstream media. Again, none speak out against this list and the dangerous precedent it sets. We are truly living in a new America. And he has a, a link here. He actually sends him uh, a, a copy of his correspondence with LinkedIn. And how they're telling him your account is closed, you're done, you know, your account will not be restored. Now, look, I understand not everybody is out there, you know, stumping for, you know, one cause or another. But isn't it just a little bit chilling to think that this might actually be a growing trend? I'm saying this from the standpoint of right now I feel fairly safe. I feel somewhat insulated from from some of these, uh, the, the, the pressure that's being brought to bear to, you know, make people toe the line. But if this grows in acceptance, if this really is allowed to become a part of the new normal, yeah, my days of going grocery shopping may be done. You know, I, I work for myself. And though my boss is a jerk, he's not going to make me get the vaccine and he's not going to threaten me about not wearing a mask or anything like that. But it's pretty chilling. I mean, can you imagine two years ago, would we have ever thought that we would be headed this way? I would say probably not, but uh, but here we are. Now, I want to I share one more quick warning with you. There have been a number of voices sounding the warning about substantial increases in food prices dead ahead. And Chris McIntosh actually does a marvelous job of connecting the dots between our food supply and our current energy crisis. This was, this was very eye-opening. He says, we previously warned about a whopping food crisis and supply problems in the fertilizer market. Well, now it's worse because that was before we had the natural gas crisis. Why is that important? Natural gas is the critical input into making fertilizer. Urea is essentially ammonia in solid state. The process of which entails reacting ammonia with CO2. And we all know now, thanks to climate Nazis, that CO2 is currently the devil. The problem, of course, is that no natural, with no natural gas, there is no urea. And with no urea, there is no fertilizer. And with no fertilizer, well, we will eat each other. Now, he has charts here, like the urea spot prices. And by gosh, they have gone up dramatically. 
Something else, he says, that we noted some time back in Korea, but which now seems a larger problem. Here's an article about an Australian farmer who warns the urea supply crisis could halt normal life within weeks. He says, not only will we not be able to grow cattle, and we will not be able to grow food, and we will not be able to grow grain or anything like that, but even if we could, we can't move it because we can't turn a wheel in a truck because we have no AdBlue. AdBlue is needed for diesel fuels. Half of all trucks on Australian roads run on diesel. As of February, he says, we may not have a truck on the road in Australia. We may not have a train on the tracks. So quite literally, the whole country comes to a standstill as of February. And this farmer goes on to say, go ahead and have a look in your cupboard. Go ahead and have a look in your fridge. And I guarantee just about every single item there at some point, urea has been used to produce that item, whether it's steak or a salad or a can of baked beans. Now, moving to Europe, we have a full-blown energy crisis unfolding there, made worse by increasingly more destructive policies by the pointy shoes. Let's produce more solar and wind when it's proven to be both inadequate and massively costly and a supply chain crisis. So we're now witnessing the beginnings of what promises to be a storm. And he says, think cold and hungry, and you've got the right picture. That electricity comes largely from natural gas, and that natural gas comes from those pesky Ruskies. European gas prices are surging above 100 euros with eyes on Russia. As Europe's Europe's, uh, benchmark natural gas prices rose above 100 euros, or $190 per barrel of oil equivalent, ahead of a series of auctions for pipeline capacity that are seen as a test of Russia's willingness to ease a supply crunch. So right now we've got this situation that's going to make your head spin. Europe is out of gas. They've spent the better part of the last decade getting rid of their own domestic energy, replacing it with baubles and toys while scoring big on the woke scorecard that have proven very abysmal at producing, well, electricity. So with Europeans now cold and shortly hungry, we are due for a war. And remember that historically... Spiraling food prices have also caused civil unrest, revolutions, and wars. Now, on the plus side, it's also been known to cure obesity, so there is that. But you can't make fertilizer without urea and natural gas. And the price of either, as the price of either of these goes higher, and both are, it will significantly impact the price of fertilizer, which impacts the price of food. Okay, you've been warned. Do what you can to solidify your position, but understand, this is a real problem. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I'm sorry, in the last segment, I know that uh, that was kind of a heavy note to end on. Right? The idea that, uh, wait a minute, food prices are going higher because they're having trouble making fertilizer because of the energy crisis. Yeah, it's it's all pretty interconnected. And I'm sorry if that's if that strikes you as, uh, woof, this is, this is more than I can bear right now. It's not pleasant, for sure. But as, uh, as the author of this piece, you know, points out here, uh, again, this is a piece from Chris McIntosh. If you expect expecting food prices to remain stable when all the ingredients to producing it are rocketing higher, that's that's just comically dumb to think that it wouldn't affect it. 
So let's let's go to something positive, okay? I'm ready to share something that hopefully will be seen as good news. I've been a Drew Carey fan for a lot of years. And after reading uh, David Hathaway's article about a very glorious fist bump that uh, Carey recently shared with a winning contestant on The Price is Right, I'm hoping you will understand how much of a stand-up guy this game show host is. David Hathaway says, look, I despise COVID fist bumps as a substitute for handshakes and hugs. He says, I always try to turn them into something normal, but I actually saw a good one on Christmas Eve. And he says, for well over a year, network TV has been doing the politically correct thing. Talk show hosts sit far apart from guests or communicate via in-studio TV monitors. There's nothing approaching physical contact. Drew Carey on The Price is Right has been forced to comply with the nonsense, even though his personal beliefs don't line up with it. Now remember, Drew Carey burst into prominence as a young comedian on the Johnny Carson show. And it was clear the tough, buzz-cut former Marine sergeant on stage didn't possess the trendy personal politics that are expected of the Hollywood elite. He's a self-proclaimed libertarian. He was a proud Ron Paul supporter and donor during Dr. Paul's presidential campaign. He opposed Bush's Iraq war and understands economics and price signals, saying, I believe the answers to all the problems we face as a society won't come from Washington. They will come from us. So the way we decide to live our lives and the decisions about what we buy or don't buy are much more important than who we vote for. Now, David Hathaway says, I occasionally watch The Price is Right, and I've been saddened that Drew Carey was forced for months to say, wear a mask in his closing statement in addition to the Bob Barker legacy, get your pets spayed or neutered. A while back, Carey ditched wear a mask and went back to the traditional Barker spayed or neutered closing. Closing. Sorry. It felt like some progress, it felt like some progress rather, but there was still no touching, hugging, or handshaking allowed between the stage crew, that's Drew and the models, and the contestants. The studio was rearranged to accommodate a much smaller crowd seated in little family-slash-friend pods spaced apart from each other. Drew was required to dutifully point out a mark on stage where the squealing contestants were required to stop and plant their feet away from Drew. Previously, The Price is Right was known for massive physical displays of affection. When contestants rushed on stage with contestants hugging Drew or lifting him off his feet, carrying him around, jumping on his back, kissing him, and of course shaking hands. Models would join in on the hugging and physical displays of affection, especially when contestants won big prizes. Prizes, rather, but that was the old days. But something very special happened on the Christmas Eve episode. A contestant was able to make it to the top tier of a very hard-pricing game called Pay the Rent, thereby winning a whopping $100,000. Confetti fell from the ceiling, and the audience, the crew, and the contestant went wild. Now, during the whole COVID era, Drew has kept himself in check and avoided all contact with contestants, but this was the right moment. Drew and the contestant approached each other, did a glorious fist bump. And David Hathaway says it's one of the few that I've approved of. He says, I know Drew's been looking for opportunities to shed the nonsense that's been imposed on him and his from his. uh, and, And this was a good start, even though he'll likely endure scoldings from network executives. But he says Drew has enough prominence to be able to fight the monsters somewhat with a dose of reality. David Hathaway says, I was surprised that this prohibited touching wasn't edited out since it was at the end of the segment. 
It's too bad that we have to be happy with small things like this. The ratchet effect of tyranny conditions us to accept a little bit of reclaimed freedom is significant. Oh, well, he says it wasn't much, but I thank you, Drew Carey, for being one of the few principled people in mainstream media that's dared to have a brain and speak some truth during your career and take some actions to advance individuals over Leviathan, even at personal risk to your own career. And so he says, Merry Christmas and a happy, glorious new year to Drew and to all LouRockwell.com readers. I see his point, right? I mean, why would we be getting excited over a fist bump? It's a fist bump. That's not even a real handshake. But isn't it interesting how, how much that mindset has taken over? And look, I'm not immune from it, okay? So it's, please don't get the impression I'm sitting here, oh, yes, I'm still above all of this. Just before the Christmas holiday, you know, before we, we actually got, I spent a lot of time on the road, but we got to see a lot of, a lot of family and a lot of friends that we hadn't seen for a while. Um, great experience in every way. But I was really worried because I was starting to get a little bit of a sore throat, stuffy head. I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is it. Omicron has me in its sights. And it makes me so angry that that's the default that I have to go to is, all right, uh, I'm, I'm feeling like I might be coming down with a cold. And I, I had to contact the people we were going to be spending Christmas with and say, are you okay? If, if I show up, you know, do I need to, do you want me to mask up? Tell me, would it be better if I just stayed away? Well, thankfully, common sense, you know, prevails. And, you know, in some cases, the, the answer was, look, most everybody here is vaccinated, so we ought to be just fine. I'm like, you know, knock on wood. <laughs> but it, it, it wears on my mental well-being. It wears on my, my psychological health to have to consider things in, in this way. So I get what David Hathaway is saying. You know, we're celebrating a little fist bump, you know, here from, from one television personality. But it just seems this narrative is just woven into every thread of life. I don't know if you saw this, and if you haven't, you're not missing a lot, but there was the, the most cringeworthy video came out over the weekend of, uh, I, I guess it was nurses, maybe nurses and doctors. Anyway, a bunch of people in surgical scrubs, I assume they were all medical personnel, fully masked and uh, dancing and singing, We Need a Little Christmas, which I'm sorry, but it is the most irritating Christmas song out there. Yes, it's it's... It's worse. Mariah Carey's uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. No, it doesn't hold a candle to how irritating this song is. And they were performing this in the East Room of the White House. And and the really noticeable thing about this uh, silly little song was that all of the performers were dutifully masked up. But wait, off there in the wings, what do I see? Why, it's Dr. Jill Biden. Unmasked. And it seems like there was one other official who was unmasked. And this is a trend that's been pointed out. I really hope that this is just, you know, our, our imaginations, you know, getting the best of us. But it seems that more and more we are starting to see examples of the elite have the option of either masking or unmasking. You know, there have been plenty of video and photo ops where they've been caught, you know, ripping the mask off as soon as they think the cameras aren't pointed at them. 
but it seems like everyone who is in a subservient role, everybody who, who is in the role of uh, serving has to wear the mask. It's like almost an outward symbol of your place in society. And I know people will get offended if I make a Jim Crow kind of reference, but you know what? Knowing your place in society, that's, a, that's a, an idea that's been tried before, Jim Crow being one of the better examples of, of how repulsive it can be. And it's being implemented again, only this time, with a little bit of a health flavor to it, a medical flavor. So I don't want to sound overly defiant here, but, uh, you know, I, you're not going to tell me my place in society. In fact, truth be told, I'm, I'm very happy to sift myself from whatever, you know, you think society is. If, if, if that's what it requires to, to fully participate in your society, yeah, maybe I don't really want that. Maybe there are just enough like-minded other people that uh, we can go ahead and step out of this one and create our own society. A parallel institution, if you will, where this kind of silliness doesn't reign supreme. Oh, I know. This sounds like sour grapes. You're just mad that you can't be one of us. No, it's that I don't want to be one of you. Anyway, links are in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please feel free to check them out and share them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.